At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. Introducing the new era of digital identity with SoCure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why SoCure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. SoCure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, SoCure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with SoCure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit SoCure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E dot com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. For me, the path to senior leadership positions in IT and cyber was not a straight line. And um, I spent some time in the military where small unit leadership was a very, very important part of my development as a young Marine. And there, But there came a point where I thought, well, I'm already a leader. I don't need to study. I don't need to, to do any more reading because I figured I've cracked this code. And as every other 25, 26 year old thinks they've got it all figured out. <laughs> Uh, but the reality was that um, I, I didn't have it figured out. And much like any other muscle, you need to be able to uh, exercise that muscle in order for it to get home and get better. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. This episode really has it all because my guest today not only has a rich background in cybersecurity, but a true passion for leadership stemming from his time in the military all the way through his role right now. Today I'm joined by Joseph Lewis. He's the Chief Information Security Officer at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, otherwise known as the CDC. In our conversation, we're gonna talk about his career journey, which he'll tell you was very much not a straight path. And we're gonna discuss some of his challenges and priorities he has right now in his CISO role. But as I mentioned, he has a real passion for leadership. So we're definitely going to dig into his thoughts there and have a conversation about something I know I'm passionate about, which is focusing on getting 1% better every single day. Let's get right into it, guys. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here, brother. No, thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. 
one of the things that really drew me to have you on the show, honestly, was you are very open and honest uh, on social media, especially on LinkedIn. Um, one of the other people that I've had on, Don Yeski, who's the chief technology officer at the Department of the Navy, he's the same way. And he sees it as kind of a responsibility of his to engage the community and, and educate and share best practices in that way. But um, one of your posts caught my attention, and it was you talking about a book called 1% Leadership. And I think I think that's great. It tied into a book I've read recently called Atomic Habits. Um, and I've, I've had other leadership conversations on this show, and it all kind of culminated in that conversation around getting 1% better every day. And I'm guessing that's kind of what the book is about. But when it comes to your approach in terms of becoming a better leader, becoming better just what you're doing in general, what are some of the things that you look to do um, to make yourself better? And that's a great question because I got to tell you, I think in in general, we are uh, IT and cyber professionals in particular, we promote people based on technical acumen rather than leadership or management skills. And um, hopefully somewhere along the way, people get trained or they learn some things and they, they become uh, more effective. But for me, the path to senior leadership positions in IT and cyber was not a straight line. And um, I spent some time in the military where small unit leadership was a very, very important part of my development as a young Marine. And um, there, But there came a point where I thought, well, I'm already a leader. I don't need to study. I don't need to, to do any more reading because I figured I've cracked this code. And as every other 25, 26-year-old thinks, they've got it all figured out. <laughs> Uh, but the reality was that um, I, I didn't have it figured out. And much like any other muscle, you need to be able to uh, exercise that muscle in order for it to get honed and get better. And so uh, I started really taking leadership training, personal development in that area very, very seriously. And you know, 1% leadership is is great. Um, I'm, I'm still in the midst of it, but I've read a number of books in and around servant leadership as well, which I think has been more uh, personally gratifying for me as a leadership style. Um, anything by Jim Hunter is great. Um, anything by the Arbinger Institute is also very good. Um, but really, it's just focusing on that softer side of, of being the CISO, right? And, and it's less about the technology, less about the tooling, but it's more about the people. And what I found is that's been way more personally gratifying, but it's also, I'm, I'm able to develop better teams by doing it that way too. Was there a moment, I mean, you mentioned your your service in the Marine Corps um, when you were younger. Was there a moment that you can remember or a series of moments where you feel like things started to click and you knew that was something important? Or has that always been something that was really ingrained in you from a young age? Well, so no, it wasn't ingrained in me as a young age. Uh, as a matter of fact, I joined the military um, and just frankly put as a mechanism to escape poverty. Uh, my family was extremely poor. Um, their college was not in the cards for me. And so the military was my ticket to the middle class. And and you know, thank God for the United States Marine Corps because they really gave me uh, a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, and and really that uh, desire and that kind of burning desire for, for servant, or I'm sorry, service. And so um, leadership was a byproduct of my time in the military, but I got to tell you something about the age and the immaturity level. I didn't really appreciate it very much um, until I was probably about 35 or 36 years old. And, and that's when I realized that um, I, what I thought I knew, I didn't know. And I think that was, you know, they, what do they say? The first step to uh, knowing you have a problem is, is admitting you have a problem. Um, and, and once I realized that I didn't know it all, that's, that's when the journey really began for me. 
that's important. And, and sometimes there's things you don't even, you don't know that you don't know that as you evolve, not only in your career, but in your personal life, things just kind of, that's why I use the, the, the terminology. It just kind of felt like it clicked. There's sometimes where you feel like puzzle pieces start to come together and this, there's this, ah, okay, I get it. And that's, that's kind of helped. I mean, I know I've had multiple uh, moments like that. I mean, having kids is certainly one that'll, that'll teach you things, but um, I, I'm curious as you've kind of advanced your career then, and, and you started off in the military and moved forward, what brought you into the world of cybersecurity? Well, so I was an IT operations uh, guy. So in the Marine Corps, I did everything from help desk to infrastructure to uh, networking system administration. I was very much an IT guy. And in the very, very kind of far corner in the, the fringe was this thing called information assurance, right? And information assurance was, hey, your scans are dirty, go patch. Or, hey, you need to go make this configuration change because the scans came back wrong. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of direct impact from a cyber perspective until um, my time working at the army, actually. So I was a federal army civilian for about 11 years. And the first several years, I kind of bounced around in a number of administrative roles, everything from uh, training and education manager to um, manpower analyst to uh, general kind of staff action guy. Um, but then I got placed back uh, into a kind of a microcosm of IT professionals that were supporting morale, welfare, and recreation activities across the Army. Um, and I did that as a system in, uh, systems administrator, systems engineer for a few years. Um, and then I had the opportunity to join the management team. And I like to joke that's when my IQ dropped 20 points because I <laughs> became a supervisor. And um, when I joined the management team, I absorbed all of these new compliance-related responsibilities. And um, we were still struggling as a as an organization on how to implement NIST's risk management framework. You know, how do you uh, how do you balance uh, cybersecurity requirements with operational requirements. Um, and, and I quickly realized there, uh, upon abs absorbing those responsibilities, that we weren't actually doing cyber. What we were doing was compliance for the sake of compliance. And and I tell you, that's that's really what got me interested was this idea that you know cyber should be an enabler of business. It shouldn't be an impediment. And I think historically, we've spent a lot of time um, being the office of no, right? This there, we were there to tell people what they couldn't do, as opposed to just being there to tell them, yes, you can do that, but let's let's talk about how we balance the risk of you doing that uh, with meaningful and and you know mitigating controls. And so uh, that's what it re really started for me um, working for the army. And I, I I was in uh, leadership and management positions in the army for about four years. Uh, a little less than four years. Um, and then I just decided I no longer wanted to do IT operations and cyber, and I only wanted to do cyber. And so I left the Army to go work for the Department of Energy. And um, I spent a year and a half almost there as a, as their director of cyber assessment strategy, which was, which was great because it only further solidified the fact that uh, cyber was where my passion was. I want to stay there for a second because I'm I'm interested around the the concept of the kind of compliance aspect of what you do. And I, I feel like, and I've thought this for a long time, that if you're only focused on compliance, you're really being reactive and you're not kind of proactively taking a look at, at things that could be coming. Um, you're just kind of absorbing things that have been coming. Is that is that a mindset that you feel like is shared across the cyber community? And, and if not, how do you feel like we're able to to get to that point where we can become more proactive in our approach? 
Well, I think private industry has really blazed some interesting trails that the federal government really needs to to adopt. And that's, uh, again, the idea that the business drives the cyber, the cyber doesn't drive the business. I think in the federal space, um, we were seen, uh, much to your point, as, as being compliance specialists. This is the requirement. This is what you have to do. And with no um, informed decision making in and around whether or not that made sense from an operational perspective. And so, um, you know, I spent three years in private sector managing a cost center. I was a production manager and we didn't generate revenue. Um, but the way you operate a cost center and a revenue generating uh, entity is you demonstrate value to those business units that do generate revenue. And that's exactly how I approach cyber. Right now, we need we are a cost center, right? Because we don't actually deliver the mission of the organization. But what we need to be doing is deriving value for them, and and the the way we do that is in a consultative advisory fashion. We say, you know, hey, you want to explore these new and emerging technologies? You want to do these really interesting things? Great. Let's 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 identify the risks around those things and find a path to yes. And for me, it's yeah, I tell my staff, yes, but. Or yes, and yes, but let's do these additional things. Or yes, and in addition to that, let's let's add these compensating and mitigating controls. And I think that that is how you become more proactive because then your business units will come to you for that consultative service and saying, hey, we've got this amazing opportunity. We just want to know how to do it smartly. And and then we can offer that that advice and that advisory service in that capacity. So that's that's a long way of saying that compliance only mentality does get you to um, dealing with things that have already come and gone, but it doesn't do anything for anything that's emerging. So I like that approach because I feel like if people are going to be more willing to be transparent about what they're trying to do from a business standpoint, where that they can come to you, I like how you put it kind of, how do we, how do we do this smartly? Right. I'm sure one of the things that, that you, I don't want to say combat, but you deal with is kind of that shadow IT aspect of, okay, well, I, I'm just going to do this in a vacuum over here and, and just kind of hope that nobody says anything. And I would imagine that if you can be more consultative and and come to them with ways to do it, not reasons why you can't, it not only builds that that relationship, but it it makes people more willing to come and and be part of that process, right? That's exactly my entire philosophy on on operating the cybersecurity program office at the CDC is one, develop those meaningful relationships, treat our our stakeholders as customers, um, and then two, really get into that consultative operation where we're saying, you know, hey, that here are here are the service offerings, really getting to the value. Here are the values that are the value that we can derive or we can provide to you as a business unit. And because of the mechanisms and the way we're funded, you're already paying for us. And so might as well take advantage of that. And then we have the added uh, complexities of RMF and FISMA compliance, which comes with, you know, 800 controls in the NIST 853 catalog. So what we are working on now is tailoring and, and tightening that service offerings into a catalog that clearly delineate which controls that we can take advantage of or we can provide compliance for. And we say, okay, so now we've not only provided you all of these amazing incident response and continuous diagnostics and monitoring services, but while you're here, we're going to whittle down your administrative burden for the authorization piece down from the full controls catalog to maybe 40 or 50 controls. And that's, a, again, that's a value-driven conversation that we can have that reinforces the desire for business units to come back and work with us later. I, I think, I mean, that's the word, right, is value. It's it's driving value for your, for your stakeholders, for your counterparts. I mean, it's so important. 
Absolutely. And and that's the only way you can truly, and I learned this in private sector, is that's the only way you can operate a cost center is to derive and generate and demonstrate value to the business units that are out there actually generating the revenue. And in our case, uh, the, the the revenue generation is the public health mission. Um, we as cybersecurity professionals do not operate the public health mission on behalf of the CDC. But what we do is provide, or what we can do and what we should be doing is providing services and value to those that are doing that mission. So let's talk about your role at CDC. I mean, you you took this role as chief information security officer um, I believe back in January. So it's only been a, a few months on the job, but I would have to imagine over the past few years that that role in and of itself has really shifted. And I'm curious to know, I mean, what is it like being in charge of cybersecurity for one of the most, honestly, high profile government organizations, not just in the world, but on the planet? Well, so it's a it's a challenging task, but I I my hat's off to the staff of the cybersecurity program office at the CDC because they are absolute consummate professionals and they're out there doing hard work every day, often in the shadows, right? Nobody knows. It's one of those things. If you ever picked up the phone and called your uh, ISP and said, hey, thanks for keeping the lights on for the last 12 months. No, you call them whenever something's broken. And um, it's those unsung heroes in the cybersecurity program office that uh, that have kept this agency safe long before I got here and they'll they'll continue to protect the place after I'm gone. Um, the role has evolved. I think the role of the CISO um, is one that uh, will continue to need to evolve. What what I'm hoping and, and what I'm seeing signs of life in and around is that you know now we can focus more on business outcomes rather than compliance. And I think changing the culture of an organization to appreciate the impact that our decisions have on those that are generating the mission, that's that's probably the biggest thing I can bring to this agency. And, and that's what I'm really hoping to do is change the conversation um, to one where we're, again, driving that that business value. So you're talking about changing culture, and, and that's obviously an important initiative, if not the most important initiative as you're kind of moving towards that more proactive posture. But what are some of the other things that you've been challenged with since you've joined? I know, again, I, I'll state, I mean, you've only been there for a few months and you're wrapping your arms around the challenge, which is is certainly uh, monumental. But what are some of those uh, challenges that you've been facing since you've joined? Well, so just plainly put, understanding the attack surface has been probably one of the biggest challenges. Um, the CDC is federated, right? Insofar that every center, institute, and office has their own, own uh, IT personnel, their own systems. And so um, wrapping your arms around the attack surface for the entire agency has been a challenge, right? And and not because our tooling is, is not up to par or anything like that, but mostly just because the speed at which things deploy now. You know, the CDC has an ongoing initiative, the Data Modern modernization initiative where we are uh, trying to completely reinvent how we accept data from state and local partners and uh, in support of the public health mission, everything from vaccine data to testing to um, every kind of data that, that the CDC um, needs in order to, to achieve our mission. We are a data-driven organization. And that entire DMI initiative, that is probably one of the most agile um, efforts I've seen in the government in my nearly uh, 20 years of federal service, right, is uh, this idea that we can spin things up, we can get to minimum viable product, and if it doesn't work, we just throw it away and we start again, or we learn and we we iterate and we we improve. And so that that attack surface management is is always going to be a challenge in that space because things are happening so quickly. And 
And truth be told, cybersecurity, especially in the federal government, those processes are built around legacy technologies. They're not really built around this idea of being agile to new and emerging tech. And so that's something that that definitely uh, keeps me awake at night uh, is just understanding the the sheer size and scope of the attack surface. So this is obviously a high profile role. And I'm sure you get because of that, you get engaged on a lot of things by uh, the commercial technology vendors out there that are trying to support the mission of CDC. I'm curious to know, what are some of the things about your role that people might not understand? Or maybe people have this this stereotype preconceived notion about um, being a CISO at an organization, especially like CDC. But what are some things that that you'd like to kind of level set? Well, so first and foremost, I would say I probably don't have the span of control or the influence that you think I do, right? So uh, I think the the expectation is that the CISO is kind of the end-all be-all for making decisions or assuming business risk. And and that's just fundamentally untrue. I, the, the business owners are the ones, um, you know, I, I like to take this back to the, the definition of risk. Risk is probability times impact. And in order to be able to define impact, you need to understand the operational impact that these decisions have, right? And so business owners are the ones that uh, really are the... Um, the deciders on operational risk. What what can they do or not do in order for the mission to still get accomplished? And so um, my span of control is really about influence. It's a span of influence rather than it is control. Um, and I've spent a, a great deal of my last five months here uh, meeting, greeting, and establishing relationships with people in order to have those value-driven conversations and provide that consultative service. But you know, my ability to say thou shalt or thou will uh, is very limited. And I think it would be counterproductive to the end state that I'm working towards. So that's that's one thing I would definitely say is is uh, something I'd like the level set. The other is that, you know, the CDC, uh, like, I, for example, that I have a complete purview over all IT and cyber for the agency. I don't, right? As I mentioned, each center institute and office has their own money and their own systems. And so um, things like providing enterprise offerings is is really, again, around what kind of value can we drive for the entirety of the agency? But that doesn't mean we're going to solve every problem for the agency because there are niche problems that, you know, for example, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health might have that um, others don't. And, and we need to be in tune to that. And again, that's where that, that value-driven conversation and that consultative service, that advisory service is really going to be helpful. I think that's that's a very important thing to call out is one being able to drive vis- business value. So if if there's if you're a commercial vendor out there listening to this, I think one of the things that I hear all the time is it's so challenging to be able to show ROI in the government space versus the commercial space because you can always look at dollar signs within the within commercial entities, but within government the ROI isn't there, but it is there. And it's exactly what you said. It's at the program level. It's at the mission level. And if you can get to those those ROIs, that's where you can have more, I think, concrete and comprehensive conversations with those business owners because they have their own missions they own, just like you mentioned. I mean, these are the people that are day in, day out driving towards those mission um, objectives and they, they have ROI. They know exactly what the ROI is that they're trying to get to. And I think if you can show that and you can show that value in a more nuanced way, you can really be true partners with these organizations and kind of help them kind of push forward what they're trying to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think 
all of that starts with a keen understanding of the role of cyber, which is as a service provider, right? As as the CISO for the for a federal agency, my job is to provide cybersecurity services to the agency. And if you approach things from that service provider mentality, then all of a sudden the entire interaction is framed differently. You are a customer. You are a stakeholder. What are your needs? How can I help you meet your mission? And and it's just it's a fundamentally different conversation than I think what we're having to date, which is you know this is what you can't do. This is what the rules say. This is what the policy requires. Um, I, I just it's it's a much more nuanced and much more um, risk informed conversation for sure. We we talked about mindset and changing culture, and I I think that's so important. And I think that. That focus around more nuanced business value is something that's certainly changed over the past decade or so within government. Um, but I'm curious to know, are there what other things have you really seen change, especially from from your vantage point, from a cyber perspective, over the past few years that that maybe you didn't need to focus on before, but now it has to be kind of a critical focus for you? Well, just getting back to that relationship building, I don't think that that is something that is as you're an up and coming IT or cyber professional that anybody really uh, tacitly says, hey, you need to learn to build coalitions and build meaningful relationships because you're going to need them later. Nobody tells you that Um, the, the path to the CISO desk is not a straight line for one. And that's that's an important thing. Everybody's path to the CISO desk is different. And that's um, but there are key and critical stops along the way that I think everybody needs to understand. And very early on, you know, if you have aspirations, upper career aspirations to be a, a leader in this organ in this kind of industry organization, then you need to understand the value of building and maintaining relationships. Sometimes, sometimes you're going to have to make a decision that absorbs some more short-term risk in order to fight the the, the, the long war, right? Lose the battle to win the war. Um, and the war is that we're, we're fighting a never-ending uh, siege by cyber attackers that uh, especially in the days of automation and, and, and scripting, we, they, they'll never stop. But that means that sometimes you're going to have to be able to will, be willing to take uh, a, a chance in order for you to develop that relationship and to to earn the trust and confidence of that business owner so that later when you come back to them and you say, I really need you to do this because this is important, that they trust and they know that that's true. And so that's something that nobody told me early on. That's something that I had to figure out on my own coming up through the ranks. And I got to tell you, it's been really, really helpful for me to know that because now having been at this agency for almost five months, I regularly and routinely reach out to old colleagues at Energy. I was on a call today and I found a, a gentleman that I worked with uh, on a different project while working at the Army. And so it, those relationships are key and critical and they'll pay long-term dividends. And that's something nobody tells you at the beginning. What about outside of government? And what comes to mind is I, I just had Jennifer Eubank on, who's the deputy director for digital innovation at the CIA. And one of the things she really doubled down on is the value that private industry brings to the CIA. Um, and they they even have a formal way of, uh, even without like an RFI, RFP type process, but a formal way of trying to, to get organizations to kind of engage um, so they're learning on a regular basis. But from your vantage point, how have you looked to engage the, the private sector to not only do like education, but... Um, for for you and your team on kind of staying staying current on certain things, but um, ways to kind of help you uh, meet your mission objectives. Well, we get the benefit of a lot of 
uh, top-down assistance on on private sector engagement from the Department of Health and Human Services, right? So they are the arbiters of of some of our contract vehicles by which we procure services and 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 things from um, vendors. And so in that way, they're also giving us a lot in the way of you know, here's how this aligns to zero trust principles, or here are the the pillars that this supports. And um, that that helps inform our selection and our kind of courting of vendors for different requirements that we have. But um, in terms of reaching out to the private sector, we're always going to rely on our private sector partners. I mean, we, we have a number of products that you know, features were developed for us that end up becoming part of production rollouts later because we said, hey, here's a need that we have that we can't find a, a solution for. And once they develop the solution, they see the value and it's able to, to be taken elsewhere. And so um, I've seen that throughout my time in government, by the way, which is, you know, the, the federal government as a customer helping drive business value for a private industry too and saying, hey, we... Yep. We need you to do this thing because we need this done. They go do it and then they go and they market it and say, look at all this great stuff that we're doing and that we can provide a solution for. And so that's that's probably the, the primary way that I think we can demonstrate value to the private sector. And then the the value that the private partners bring to us too is, you know, that that two-way communication in and around new and emerging requirements from because we get these at the federal space. Sometimes every three or four months there's a new OMB memo, there's a new executive order, there's there's something. And our ability to communicate with our vendors and then have that two-way conversation has been uh key to to keeping up. You've mentioned a couple of times that um you worked within the army as you were as your career was evolving. Um, I'm curious to get your take. What was the difference working within a DOD environment versus a federal civilian from a cybersecurity perspective? I'd have to imagine the culture is different. Um, obviously, the the missions are are different. But what was your take on on the differences? I loved my time working for the Army. Um, it really helped solidify that. So I, I became a federal employee because my time in the military got cut short. I was hurt in active duty and I had to get out earlier than I expected. And I still had a public service calling. And so working for the federal government was was the way that I met that. And, and the Army was a great steward. and It was a great kind of transitionary career for me, too coming from being active duty military and then going to work for the department of the army where everybody was, uh, not everybody, but a vast majority of them were former military themselves. But, um, one thing I will say about the department of defense though, is that we had significant challenges sticking to long-term strategies. And, and there's a very specific reason. And it's probably one that most people that have not been around the military don't realize is, your senior leaders, your general officers, they rotate every two and a half to three years. And so we would get a new commanding general, we'd get a new deputy commanding general, and we'd spend six months, nine months reading them in on the 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 I just the vast array of projects and ongoing efforts and the long-term strategic goals and all these things, only for them to then want to put their own stamp on things and say, well, you know, that may not be as important. Now we need to do this. Now we need to do that. And then we'd have about a good 12 to 18 months of good, solid progress. And then that general would either get his retirement notice or he would get his PCS orders and say, well, in six months, you're going to have a new commanding general. Why don't we hold off? And then you can take that up with him. And the whole process, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. And that happened, having worked for the army for almost 11 years, that happened multiple times. And those big seismic shifts in strategic direction, um, they were jarring. I mean, it, it, it made for, um, a real challenge 
throwing out a North star by which you can, you can work off of because that North star was subject to change uh, as the leadership changed. Now working for the, as a federal civilian in a civilian agency, that doesn't seem to be the case. There seems to be a lot more continuity at the senior leader level. You've got senior executives like myself that, you know, they'll stay in positions three, five, seven years. Um, and that helps, that helps you with long-term strategic planning and it helps you, you know, align, um, in office, right? Like the cybersecurity program office, um, to the strategic goals of the organization. Cause that takes time. And sometimes when those big seismic shifts happen at the top, um, that's, that, that can be extremely jarring. So that that's probably the biggest difference aside from culture that I noticed, um, coming from the army to civilian led agencies. Going through that. I mean, obviously it has to be difficult when you're, when you're shifting priorities over and over like that. What did you take from that individually that you've brought into, your your leadership position now at CDC? Well, one of the things I realized is that there are some absolutes, okay, um, that that they should never change. People, it should always be a priority. That is an absolute. Um, and that's something that I have made a cornerstone of my leadership and management strategy at the CDC is, you know, I have taken, it's taken me almost five months, but I, I have met uh, almost every single person in the cybersecurity program office individually for a 15 or 30 minute conversation to get to know them and to demonstrate my genuine interest in them as as people. Uh, the the joke is I'm not the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain and I'm not an empty desk. I'm here and I'm present. And as as the the not only the office director, but as their leader, that uh, I am here for them. And that's an absolute. And that's something that despite shifting strategic priorities, I think uh, needs to be a constant. Um, the other thing I, I realized is that, you know, sometimes it's and, and really it's reinforced in cyber. You have to be agile to those seismic shifts because, you know, in, in cyber, we could be operating off the premise that the, the, the big threat today is X when tomorrow it's Y or hell this afternoon it's Y, right? We don't, we don't know. And so um, resilience and being able to kind of uh, adjust and be nimble on your feet. That's, that's another thing I learned. That's interesting. Cause there's an, there's a, kind of an ironic dichotomy between those two, the, the, the absolutes, which I love, I think you need that alignment and then the agility that you need, right? So, so there are absolutes and there are things that need to be a little bit more fluid that you need to adjust to and, and um, and kind of move around. So I, I think those are two really important takeaways there is, is you need to be rigid in certain things, but you need to be very flexible in others. And as a leader, it's really, that might be one of the most important things you do is identify what those things are that you're going to be rigid about and what those things are that you're going to be flexible about. Absolutely. I mean, what, what you're really talking about are, are what are your values as a leader? What what are the things that you hold dear that uh, are not not negotiable, right? For me, treating people with dignity and respect is not negotiable. For me, being an active and present leader is non-negotiable. Um, but there are things that I have to be willing to negotiate on, like my risk tolerance for the organization, for the agency. There are times when my risk tolerance might be lower and the organization says, well, we have these operational requirements and that means we need to adjust risk tolerances. Well, that's negotiable. It has to be. But there are, to your point, absolutely things that are non-negotiable. And for me, it really goes back down to your your values as a human. And for me, people are, it's just, just a non-negotiable for me. Before I give you some chance to to leave final thoughts, I have one last question, and this is more kind of forward facing. Um, in your role as a CISO and kind of you working with other other CISOs out there within government and private industry, how do you see that role of a chief information security officer evolving over the next few years? And what are some of the things catalysts that that you see that would drive that evolution forward? 
Well, so in the private sector, there's some really interesting things going on. I mean, there's some proposed rules to require a certain level of cybersecurity uh, acumen at the board level. And I think that's going to drive some really interesting decision space for companies. Are they going to put the CISO on the board? Are they going to uh, take a former CISO and make them an advisory member of the board? I think that's, that's something that is going to be really, really interesting to watch. Um, at the federal level, I think much like the, the private sector, there's going to be a an evaluation of the role. Uh, and I and I say that because right now in the federal space, the CISO is still a direct report to the CIO. And often those those requirements are competing, right? And that's that's something that I think private industry has figured out to the to a large degree where they're making the CIO and the CISO peers where they can, you know, work together to solve the the organization's problems rather than a reporting relationship. And um, I think from the federal space, much like industry, we're we're going to figure that out, and it's going to take us time, but we'll we'll eventually get there too. Um, and and plainly put, I think we're going to continue to struggle in the federal space as CISOs with the onslaught of new requirements that are often and and I'll say often, but most of the time they're unfunded uh, mandates. You know, the Executive Order One Four Zero Two Eight came out requiring multi-factor authentication and encryption and uh, a zero trust implementation and micro-segmentation. And there was no money that came with that in order to 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 meet those requirements. And so, you know, uh, that that's as those new and emerging requirements come out, we're going to continue to have to evaluate how do we absorb those um, given fiscally constrained environments. And so that's going to be a continued challenge for, for federal CISOs for sure. I, how do you deal with that when those type of parameters come down and that guidance comes down and there isn't funding to do it? But if it doesn't get done, I mean, you, you talk about kind of zero trust frameworks, but also um, multi-factor authentication and things of that nature, which which has a technology aspect to it. There's a procurement aspect to that. But if it if there's no funding, if it doesn't get done, it's still a problem. How do you sure. how do you deal with that challenge as a leader? Well, so the way we I have always approached this is we make this a part, we interweave this as a part of the fabric of our modernization efforts. So we already have modernizations underway for technologies, right? So this this tool no longer meets the agency's requirements. And so we're going to do a proof of concept for a new tool. Well, okay, let's pause and let's look at all the new and emerging requirements that have come out since the initial tool was was deployed and see as as a part of our analysis of alternatives what how many of these new requirements can we meet right and and if you bake it into the, sy the systems development life cycle um that's how you modernize your way into compliance with these these new directives and um that that life cycle is is ever ongoing right you're always going to be retiring you're always going to be procuring new capabilities but adjusting the lens by which you procure new capabilities to include these new and emerging requirements that's that's how we kind of eat the elephant one bite at a time Joe, I mentioned at the very beginning of the show that um, one of the things that that I've really enjoyed is seeing you engage on social media and you have a, have opinions on things that that I appreciate. And you definitely brought those here, which I, I also appreciate and glad we could have this conversation today. I, I, it, it's definitely even better than I thought it would be. Um, any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience? Well, I'll say this. I, I jokingly referred to this before, but the, the path to the CISO's desk is not a straight one and everybody's path is going to be slightly different. But I will tell you that if you are at all interested in being a cybersecurity leader in the private sector or the public sector, you're going to want to understand 
how to drive business value, which means you need to understand the business your organization is in. Um, one of the, the best investments I ever made in myself was getting an MBA because it taught me to read a profit and loss and to do uh, depreciation schedules and uh, managing as a percent of sales and all of the things that that now, even though I'm in the federal space, that I can easily translate into um, value-driven conversations for for my business owners. Um, th those are just key and critical skills. And, and that and, and the soft skills, the relationship building skills, um, making sure that you're, you're focusing on those uh, as a part of your leadership journey, um, that that's the best advice I could give to anybody. So uh, th those are things I, I I banged my shin into the, the the desk in a dark room, figuring out on my own. And so if I can if I can shed a little light so you don't hit your shins on the on the table, then 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 that I, I count that as a win. I mean something something else I want to call out that you've seemingly exhibited that is is common. Uh, it's a common pattern for leaders I brought in the show is that growth mindset too. I mean, you, you're talking about an MBA. I mean, that's investing in yourself and, and you're, you're investing in, in leadership training and you're looking at how can you develop better relationships and you're, you're not looking at yourself as a linear entity, but really trying to grow. And I think that's an important aspect of a leader too. And um, you've, you've obviously personified that. Well, thank you. I think if you're standing still, then you're not standing still. The world is passing you by. So in reality, you're moving backwards. And so, you know, you need to be willing and able to one acknowledge that you're an unfinished product. And and that means that in order to be a finished product, you need to continue to improve yourself. And that's that that's a harsh realization to to say that, you know, I'm not I'm not yet good enough. Right? Uh, Jim Hunter has a great saying. He says, um, we're going to strive for perfection. Knowing we'll never catch it, but we're going to catch excellence along the way. And I got to tell you, that is that is just such a that, that is my personal mantra on personal development. I I'm, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm never going to be perfect, but I'm definitely going to try to catch excellence along the way. So, I love that. I think that's a. I, I can't think of a better way to close uh, our conversation today. Thanks so much for for being part of it, for sharing some of your insights, letting us jump into your head a little bit, and and kind of kind of uh, motivating some of the listeners out there to not only get better every day, but also giving them some of the, the key priorities they should be looking at. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's been great. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittistrayb. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.